And one that we didn't put in the paper that was especially unusual that I just thought was like so fascinating when we discovered it is that we were having a really high occurrence of emotional liability in some of our notes. And we're like, why, like, why is this? Like, this is kind of an unusual one to be really common. Um, so we went back to the notes and, and started looking and it turns out that there was a provider whose last name was Moody. Uh -huh. And that was giving us these false positives for emotional liability. So, you know, go going back to the complexity of language, like who would have ever, like I would have never thought that that was something we need to look for. So that goes back to the complexity of language and the importance of, you need to look at your data, right? Like always, always look at, look at your data. Welcome to Clinical Appraisal a podcast about nursing science with a focus on methodology. I'm your host, Ian Lane. All opinions shared are my own, and none of this information constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. If you would like to make a donation in support of my efforts to continue this show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. If you would like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Today I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Teresa Kolick of the University of Pittsburgh School of Nursing. Dr. Kolick has a BSN and a PhD in nursing, and has a combined research expertise in genomics and biomedical informatics. Dr. Kolick's program of research is dedicated to mitigating symptom burden in patients diagnosed with chronic conditions using omics-based approaches and informatics and data science techniques, including clinical data mining, natural language processing, unsupervised machine learning, and data visualization. Currently, Dr. Kolick is developing a pipeline for characterization of symptom clusters in chronic conditions using both structured and unstructured electronic health record data. This work represents the essential first step toward future biomarker discovery and clinical application to alleviate symptom burden. As a highly specialized nurse scientist, Dr. Kolick is at the forefront of advancing symptom science for chronic conditions through the novel synergy of symptoms, omics, and informatics. Please enjoy this wonderful episode with Dr. Teresa Kolick. So tell us a little bit about who you are, what your main interests are, and, and also thank you so much for joining me. It's really a pleasure to have gotten to know you a little bit and to get to chat today. Oh, thank you, Ian. I, am, I was really honored to be asked to present uh, on your podcast. So I am an assistant professor at the University of Pittsburgh School of Nursing, and I'm a little unique in that I have highly specialized training in both genomics and biomedical informatics. If I could sum up my program of research into like one sentence, it's that I'm dedicated to mitigating symptom burden in patients diagnosed with chronic conditions using informatics data science techniques and omics approaches. 
One thing that I'm really interested in is using secondary data, you know, reusing secondary data from electronic health records. And I think that reuse of this data has the ability to increase our quantity and quality of symptom research. My team is currently working to develop symptom vocabularies from electronic health record clinical notes using natural language processing. And we're hoping to use the symptom information that we then extract from the notes to study symptom clusters in chronic conditions. I really think that more than ever before, nurse scientists have this great opportunity to harness the potential of big data to study patient symptom burden. And that's, that's what we're trying to do. My listeners will be familiar with uh, the EHR as a, a way to sort of gain a little bit of insight into this. I had a Dr. Anthony Tolentino on about a month ago, month and a half ago. And um, he's a nurse informaticist who's since gone on to get his PhD in nursing science and has done some work in that area. Um, super cool. We'll talk a lot more later in the conversation about NLP and kind of what that is and how you used it. But let's backtrack a little bit. And can you tell us a little bit about how you got into nursing and kind of what initiated your interests to become a nurse scientist? Like, what was the thing that gripped you and made you want to become a nurse scientist? Oh, sure, sure. So I'll start um, with what got me into nursing, right? And then I'll tell you about what initiated my interest in becoming a nurse scientist. And I am a BSN to PhD. And I do think that there are, are more of us. And I actually never worked clinically. I went straight through. So I'll uh, tell you all, all about that. So kind of what got me interested in nursing, science has always been an important part of my life. And I wanted to help people. And, and that's about it. That's, that's what initiated my interest in the nursing profession. Plus, getting out of high school, I didn't want to be in school forever. And I knew that I could have a great career with a bachelor's of nursing. And that, of course, is such a big joke now, <laughs> right? Because I, I went straight from my bachelor's degree to my PhD and, and then a postdoc. So that was what another, another seven years, but um, that's what initially drew me, drew me to nursing. And uh, now for your second question, you know, what made me interested in becoming a nurse scientist? So when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Pittsburgh, the School of Nursing was starting this program called the Undergraduate Research Mentorship Program, where BSN students had the opportunity to work with researchers in the School of Nursing with the intent of gaining some exposure to nursing research. Uh, it was only five hours a week. You got paid minimum wage. Sounded interesting. You know, so I thought I would apply. And they, they asked you kind of what your interests were. And I put down that my interests were genetics and cancer. And I was soon paired with Dr. Yvette Conley. And Yvette, as you know, Ian, is this amazing geneticist. She has made outstanding contributions to nursing. You know, I think she was the first geneticist with an appointment in the School of Nursing in the United States. And 
I, as a lowly BSN student, had no idea at the time, you know, who I was working with, what a gift I had been handed being paired with Yvette. And that's when my whole career trajectory, you know, changed, but I think points to the importance of, of mentorship. Mm-hmm. But with Yvette, I learned how to do literature reviews. I had the opportunity to collect genetic information, my own genetic information, in the School of Nursing Molecular Genetics Lab. I never, never thought when I when I started that I would go into research, but I found that I, I love the research process. So when it came time to graduate and go on to the next stage of my career, I decided to enroll in the nursing PhD program at the University of Pittsburgh. So that's kind of like the the beginning, but to get you all the way to where I am with with my work today, because this was all very genetics and, you know, we're talking about more informatics things, more natural language processing things. So my PhD was very genomics intensive. And I focused on understanding the biological foundations of cognitive dysfunction in breast cancer survivors. And while my dissertation work on this single symptom of cognitive dysfunction was highly informative, as I'm sure you and many of your your listeners know, symptoms and chronic conditions often don't occur in isolation. And there's this real need to study and phenotypically characterize what we call symptom clusters or these multiple co-occurring symptoms. Symptom clusters, especially at the time, you know, how many years ago was this now? Eight, nine years ago were understudied. They were poorly understood. They're, they're still, they still are. And the majority of symptom cluster research was limited to cross-sectional studies of cancer populations using predetermined symptom inventories. And one of the things that really occurred to me that was limiting progress in this area was the lack of access to these large longitudinal data sets that are really required to study complex phenotypes like symptom clusters. And I thought, you know, we could really use electronic health records and these data science techniques to innovatively address these limitations. So I decided to obtain additional training in biomedical informatics and data science as a postdoctoral research fellow at Columbia University School of Nursing under the mentorship of Dr. Susan Bakken. And this is where I started down the road of developing, applying, and implementing a pipeline for the characterization of symptom clusters using electronic health record data. So kind of what, you know, brings all my, my stuff together are the methods, you know, whether it's the omics or the electronic health records, it's finding the best ways to use these big data sets to use this large complex information to gain insight about the, the symptom experience. And because a lot of my work is in adapting methods developed by others to applications of nursing interests, to hopefully provide tools and resources to other nurse scientists to study the patient symptom experience as well. So you you gave us some extra context about what, and I really like that story. It's so interesting how your evolution took place over time. 
as a researcher and where your focus kind of became honed. And I always find it interesting. So it's cool to me to think about your trajectory and your process and kind of how you came to where you are today. So you talked about the trajectory a little bit. What gripped you about symptoms as a broad area of study in particular? What was that thing that sort of you latched onto and you're like, this is what I find so fascinating? So that's a, that's a really, that's a really good question. And again, like my uh, decision to go into nursing, I don't, I don't really have an anecdote or any kind of aha moment, you know, that I can point to. I feel like a lot of people have these aha moments that, you know, they, they can point to. I, I think it was just because that assessing symptoms, monitoring symptoms, interpreting symptoms, treating symptoms, and managing symptoms were all such central aspects of nursing care that the interest in symptoms is just organic. And I think that's true for a lot of nurses, for, for a lot of nurse scientists. Plus, then when you go and look at the need for the work, you know, considering how challenging symptoms can be to, to manage, uh, the influence that the symptoms can have on so many aspects of a patient's life from their mood to, the, to their functional status, you know, their quality of life in general, and, and probably even uh, survival in, in some cases. What do you find to be the most complex aspects of studying symptoms? Yeah, so symptoms are a really complex concepts, right? And that's one of the things that makes them so interesting to study, but also so challenging to study, right? So there's many complexities of symptoms. So they're complex just because they're subjective, right? So for any of your listeners who probably many of them are familiar with symptom science, but if, but if they aren't, uh, symptoms are subjective indications of disease. These are things, right, that a patient needs to report to you, like anxiety, depressed mood, disturbed sleep, impaired cognition, nausea, you know, et cetera. And that's in contrast to signs, which are things that are objective, they can be directly observed or measured, you know, like vomiting, like a rash, weight gain or loss. So that's kind of the, the first thing. I think just in their nature, they're very complex. Then the patient symptom experience has multiple dimensions, right? It's, it's not just occurrence. Like, do you have the symptom? Do you not? It could be the severity, you know, how severe is your symptom? The frequency, is it happening all the time? Is it happening, you know, once every two months? So it's okay. Uh, or the distress, which you could also call like the burden, how, how bothersome something is. And what dimension of the symptom experience is the most important. And this probably varies depending on the context. It might vary depending on on the person and it might change through time. Then, of course, you can have multiple symptoms occurring at the same time. You know, these are the symptom clusters that, that we're talking about. So there's all this complexity happening there. But the complexity that I am currently most interested in is the language the words, the, the terminologies that are used by clinicians to document symptoms in clinical notes and the language, the, the words, the terminologies that patients are, are using to describe their symptom experience. And the complexity is of the language it is a real challenge. It's best to kind of just think of an example 
So you could think of like a single symptom concept. I always like to use fatigue as an example. Uh, fatigue can be indicated using many different synonym words or expressions, right? You could say, I'm feeling tired. You could write, the patient has drowsiness. Uh, I feel like I have energy loss. I feel exhausted, groggy, sleepy, sluggish. I feel like I'm tiring more quickly. You know, I, I feel weary. And all of these different things all come down to meaning that I am fatigued in, in some way. And these go on, go beyond terms that are included in standardized vocabularies. They can include common misspellings, you know, typos uh, within the notes and, and abbreviations, right? So we could write T-A-T-T for tired all the time instead of writing fatigue. The other thing that's complex about the vocabulary is that the presence of a symptom word or expression within a note may not indicate that the patient is actually experiencing that symptom. So for example, a symptom may be negated and negation just means they're not having it. So the note could say no fatigue, does not complain of fatigue or it could have occurred in the past. So this would be like a past medical history of fatigue, um, not currently fatigue. So again, just because, you know, the words there, like you may identify the word fatigue in the note doesn't mean the patient's actively experiencing it. And this is a real challenge that we need to overcome if we're going to be able to use electronic health records and the notes from electronic health records for research. It strikes me that you must be a highly organized thinker. The way that I'm imagining it is like, there's a whole layer of complexity in studying symptoms, even just one type of symptom concept, obviously, as you mentioned, and did a really eloquent job describing the complexity there. And then take just one facet of that complexity, say the language use, the syntax, the context of the language, who's writing that note? Um, is there a misspelling? And so anyway, you have all these other aspects of that, uh, that domain that you're looking at. And there's so much there even just in that one space of, as you mentioned, processing the language. And that, that of course, gets us to your paper. And so uh, before I jump into that, is there a particular symptom that you're passionate about above and beyond others or, or a type of symptom cluster? Like for you personally, I guess two questions. One is like, what's, what's that symptom concept for you that you find passion in exploring in particular, if any, and then ultimately, what's the end goal for you in terms of your like major contribution? Do I have a particular symptom that's of interest? That the answer is no, I really don't. And let me explain to you why that is. And I think this is a very different approach than uh, many people take. I think my informatics and data science colleagues are very familiar with, with this kind of approach, you know, more so than someone traditionally trained in, in nursing. But we've tried to go very broad with our approach to developing symptom vocabularies and studying symptoms. And we're trying to obtain information on all symptoms, uh, across symptoms. And we're doing this because 
we want the data to tell us what's happening, right? We want the results to be as data-driven as possible. Depending on your research question, a predetermined symptom inventory you know, may be the way to go. I don't want to say like something bad about all predetermined symptom inventories. There's, there's definitely a, a place for them. And so I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not trying to say that, but depending on what you're answering, the symptom inventories may be biasing your results. So when we do this very exploratory, very hypothesis generating work, which is, is what we're trying to do, we try to include everything from fatigue to upset stomach to depressed mood to altered sense of taste. Even if on the surface, you know, we don't think maybe this has any association with a, con with a particular condition. It hasn't been traditionally associated with a particular condition or, or treatment. So yeah, so no, I don't. I like them all equally. <laughs> we, uh, and we try, we try to include them all. So then for your, your next question about what are we ultimately trying to answer? And you actually started talking about this earlier, Ian, is the patient symptom experience is highly variable, right? Even within a condition or a treatment. And ultimately, one way or another, our goal is to be able to understand this, this variability. And we really feel that this data-driven characterization of symptom clusters in a variety of chronic conditions, including in beyond cancer, where it's most well-defined is the essential first step towards these chronic condition-specific analyses, towards detection of shared symptom clusters and mechanisms, towards biomarker discovery and uh, clinical and genetic biomarker uh, discovery in particular, and then eventually, you know, way down the line to future nursing assessment and management. And this is why we focus on methods and tools and approaches to use the electronic health record to do this. Now, eventually, and we're starting to do this now, which is, which is exciting, but on a very preliminary basis, you know, after we get this characterization done well, we do want to look for shared and distinct clusters across conditions. Uh, so that we can begin to get at mechanisms, hopefully underlying the, the symptom clusters, and then look at the influence of potential pre predictors like the omics, like uh, social determinants of health, all to explain this symptom variability. But right now, we're really in that uh, phenotypic characterization phase still. So I hope that answered answered your question on what we're uh, ultimately trying to achieve. It definitely does. And I would also say, to my mind, it seems that it's almost like a... So you talked about the hypothesis-driven exploratory work that you guys are doing. And I find that to be a very important line because you really are trying to establish the sort of phenotypic baseline before kind of diving deeper. And others have tried to do that in different ways. And you and your team and um, others doing the kind of work that you're doing are really trying to be 
You know, one of and this I'll I'll jump into the uh, the 2021 paper in nursing research now as well is one of the things I really loved about your paper. It has to be one of my favorite papers this year for a variety of reasons. And two of the reasons I'll give one of them is that everyone has their hypotheses, but it seems that you went in without a sort of there didn't seem to be an agenda. It seemed to be very much like we're going to let the data speak and we're going to try to figure out what is it telling us. And that I have huge respect for that. And then the other thing is that because it was a methodology focused paper, it was really like, is this method feasible? Will it help us to, to do this in the future? And so there's something about that not coming to the table, having already thought we know the answer. You know, it's very data driven, very much let the data speak. Um, so First, do you have any thoughts on that? And then for those that are not aware or have not already read this paper, can you tell us a little bit about what you did, what natural language processing is, and how you used it and stuff like that? I know that was broad, but thoughts. <laughs> yeah, so so first, uh, thank you so much for the generous compliments on our on our work. I, I am really proud of the of the products that that we put out there so so i really appreciate that um to your comment about letting letting the data speak and that's you know what we what we try to do yes we try to try to let the data speak and then add in interpretation from our clinical experts right because everything comes down to content uh, specific and and that's one thing that nurse scientists can really contribute to this type of work, to this very data-driven work, um, is the interpretation, is, is the context. And, you know, it, it, a data point always comes back to the patient, right? So we can we can never forget forget about the patient. And um, Patty Brennan and Sue Bakken have this have this paper that they've published. Um, I'm trying to think of the exact title. I think it's like, oh, nursing needs big data and big data needs nursing. Maybe I have it have it transposed backwards. You know what I'm what I'm talking about, Ian. But I, do, yeah. I remember I remember in there they have this line about how we need to remind our data science colleagues that these data points, you know, they're they're from a patient. They're they're not just they're not just a data point. So we always come back uh, to the interpretation is the whole point that I that I wanted to say there. So then I guess we'll go on to uh, the, your questions about the paper. Uh, let's start by talking about natural language processing, and then we'll talk specifically about what, what we did. So, all right, I, I always have to start with a little bit of background here. So I hope that so far you've been convinced that text-based clinical notes are this really rich source of symptom information. And... Historically, patient symptom information has been manually extracted from notes by clinical experts. You can imagine what it's like, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have participated in that manual extraction process. And if you have, you know that it's very labor-intensive, 
it's time consuming, it's expensive because you need to pay for all these, you know, nurses who, who know, know what they're doing, right, to be able to read the notes. And one of the big things is, is that it lacks the scalability necessary to extract symptom information from large quantities of notes for hundreds to thousands or, you know, even up to millions of patients with data stored in the electronic health record uh, notes. So that's why we started kind of looking into natural language processing to help to overcome some of these scalability issues related to manual note review, right? So natural language processing is any computer-based algorithm that transforms natural language so that it can be represented for computation. And it's used to extract information, it's used to capture meaning, and it's used to detect relationships in the text through the use of rules, you know, rules that, that you're writing, and then also with the relevant domain knowledge that, that we were talking about earlier. So simply put, if you want to get down to it, NLP is the use of computers to interpret and extract meaning from text. So when we started doing this, we, we kind of began with looking in the literature, like we always do for, for so many problems, right? And we looked at the use of NLP to process or analyze symptom information from electronic health record notes. And if you're interested in this and you want to read more, we do have a systematic review that was published in JAMIA, the Journal of the American Medical Informatics Association. Uh, it won't it won't be hard for you to find. I don't have that many publications, especially if you put in me as the first author. You'll you'll find it in PubMed, no problem there. But essentially, what we found is that NLP tools were currently being used to extract information from diverse note types written by a variety of clinicians on a wide range of symptoms all across clinical specialties. And that all sounds you know, good and, and, and it is good, but the majority, I think almost the entirety of previous work has focused on the use of symptom information for physician and medicine-focused tasks like disease prediction rather than on the investigation of symptoms themselves. So these tools may be able to be used for symptoms, but you know, likely they're probably insufficient for true symptom-focused tasks. And as nurses, it's really critical that we develop and use NLP approaches that are designed for the specific purpose of studying the core nursing concepts so that what we get you know, is what we want, you know, coming out of the algorithm. So we developed a method that utilizes standardized vocabularies, uh, takes advantage of clinical expertise, and natural language processing tools that are already in existence to generate comprehensive symptom vocabularies that can then be used to identify symptom information in electronic health record clinical notes. And we did this for 56 distinct symptom concepts. You know, as we said, we go, we go very broad uh, with, with our symptoms.
So then I could talk a little bit more about the methods that we actually did, you know, how about that standardized vocabulary, the clinical expertise, uh, the combination with the NLP tool. Yeah, please. So the first thing that we did is we reviewed a widely used medical terminology. You've probably heard of it. If you don't know um, exactly what it is, SNOMED, to create a catalog of candidate symptom concepts. And the review was, again, to be very unbiased. You know, we didn't, we wanted to include all symptoms. We're like, well, let's just go to a medical terminology and we'll just see what all symptoms are, are listed there. So then for each symptom concept, we created a preliminary, excuse me, list of synonym words and expressions using the unified medical language system or the UMLS. And what the UMLS is, is it's a compendium of many different health terminologies. So then after we created those lists, we had nurse clinician scientists review the list and make any recommendation uh, for, for changes. So next we use two large bodies of text to generate language models in an NLP tool called NimbleMiner. And now that I have said that sentence, I realized that probably some of the only words that people understood were two large bodies <laughs> of text. So let's uh, let's unpack like a, like a whole 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 bunch of that. And this is going to take me a, a couple couple steps to get through. So so bear with me. So let's let's start with NimbleMiner. So NimbleMiner was the NLP tool that we used. And NimbleMiner was developed by a nurse scientist and, and his team, one of my colleagues, Dr. Maxim Topaz, who's at Columbia University. And NimbleMiner is an open source and free NLP RStudio Shiny application. And what it does is it enables users to mine clinical text to rapidly discover large vocabularies of these synonym terms. And all the R Shiny application is doing for you is allowing it to be very user-friendly. So if you have no coding experience, you can open up this um, RStudio Shiny application. It's a very user-friendly interface. It, it's point and click and all the code, you can see it, but it's all running, running in the background. And if you want to find out more of this, just, just Google it, just Google Nimble Miner, or you can visit uh, Dr. Topaz's GitHub page. You can even download it onto your own machine. Like I said, it's free, it's open source. You can modify it as you wish. It's just um, mtopaz slash Nimble Miner, really easy to find. But behind the scenes of Nimble Miner are these language models, and that's what's allowing us to do the natural language processing. And what language models are, are they are statistical representations of a body of text. And they're what we use to discover the synonym vocabularies. The specific language model that we used within NimbleMiner is called a word embedding model. And what word embedding models do is that they use neighboring words of a word or an expression to identify 
other potential synonyms for a concept. So the whole idea behind it is that if two words or two expressions have similar neighboring words, they're likely appearing within a similar context and therefore they may be synonyms. So that's kind of how Nimbleminer begins to propose uh, synonyms to you. So based on the neighboring words of a word or expression, you know, how likely is another word or expression to be similar or, or dissimilar from, from a word or expression. So now back to the large bodies of text, which may have been the only thing that were understood at the beginning. Um, our large bodies of text were electronic health record clinical notes and PubMed abstracts. And when I say large bodies of text, like I mean large bodies of text. So we obtained all available patient clinical notes. This was 5.5 million notes. Also one of, my, notes. one of my favorite parts of this paper, but, but continue. That's a lot of notes, right? <laughs> From the Columbia University Irving Medical Center Clinical Data Warehouse. And these were all the available clinical notes that were authored in, in 2016. And... I know we keep saying this, but again, the thought behind this is that we just didn't want to be unbiased. You know, we didn't want to be biased. We wanted to include everything, right? Like how, how do we know what note is going to have important symptom cons content and until we look. So you upload those into the system. The software performs some text pre-processing. Uh, it, it converts frequently occurring words into combinations of expressions, and then you are able to build the language model. And the, the statistics, the computer processing behind these language models have been written by other individuals who are beyond us and, and, and what they do in their in their computer and their computer skills so we're borrowing that uh, from them we didn't develop any any part of the of the language model we're just using it with our data I just wanted to make make that clear sure so then finally what we do is we go back to those preliminary list of synonyms that we generated using the UMLS and uh, got input from our clinical experts, and we put them into NimbleMiner. And then based on the language model, NimbleMiner suggests similar terms for each of the imported synonyms. And, and that's how you begin developing this vocabulary. So let me just give you an example, because that's probably, again, the, the easiest way to understand. So let's say that we're trying to develop a vocabulary for something like abdominal pain. So the language model might suggest things like abdominal discomfort as a synonym. It might suggest ABD for abbreviation for abdominal pain as a synonym. Or it might suggest abdominal PN, which is a misspelling of, of the word pain, of course, right? Now, it might also suggest some things that seem to be totally off the wall, like maybe there's the word tennis and you're like, where did this come from? But then there are some other suggested synonyms uh, that you could easily see how the language model would suggest it. So again, let me give you an example. It could be something like morphine. 
or delauded, right? So it's not quite right for that concept of pain, but you could see why the model would come up with that because these pain medicine words probably have similar neighbors you know, to the pain concepts themselves. So then what you do is you go through as the user and you say, yes, good job, word embedding model. Good job, Nimble Miner. This is a good synonym. I would like to add this to my list. Or no, you know, this isn't quite right. Or no, this is uh, completely off the wall. You know, don't add it to my synonym list. Uh, you can see how the choices that you make would influence the vocabularies that you develop. So we had two individuals with expertise in symptoms go through and iteratively do this process for each of our symptom concepts. Uh, we compared the list of words and expressions from our, our two users. We discussed any discrepancies. We had an, an adjudicator to make final decisions if they were needed. But the output of this process is a comprehensive vocabulary for each symptom concept um, that others will, will hopefully, once we have this completely refined, will be able to take, you know, and use in their own work. And you won't have to do this whole process yourself. You can skip right uh, to, to the labeling. And it really is quite a long and detail-oriented process. You know, depending on the concept, you know, it could take a couple, an hour to maybe a couple hours, even more to develop the vocabulary for, for an individual symptom to go through and, and, and pick that. But um, it's nowhere near, like even this amount of time is nowhere near the amount of time that it would take you to manually annotate 5.5 million notes for 56 different symptoms. Yeah, good luck. So <laughs> that's, you know, why we, why we undertook that process. Wow. I think you answered every possible question I could think of in that, which was fantastic. And, uh, and that is such a fascinating process. I'm hoping my, um, my listeners will I mean, I hope they will read your paper. Um, like I said, it was one of my favorites this year. But I also hope that they read the systematic review because that was enlightening as well in kind of formulating the research questions for this paper and stuff like that. Um, one of the things I'm curious about, and I suspect some people might be wondering um, who did read the paper, you chose five, I think it was, five symptoms to look at. Why did you choose those five and what were the five? So what I talked about so far was the, was the development, right? So then we also evaluated our vocabularies and we evaluated Nimble Miner's labeling performance because um, with Nimble Miner, you can build these vocabularies, but then you can also go back and, and label, the, label the notes for your symptom concepts of interest uh, as as well. So the five symptom concepts that we chose to do the evaluation on were constipation, depressed mood, disturbed sleep, fatigue, and palpitations. And what we were trying to achieve with those five was to have a diverse 
representation of symptoms to have some that are more abstract concepts, something like a depressed mood, something more concrete concepts like constipation and palpitations. And uh, those preliminary lists of synonyms that I talked about, we were trying to get diversity in the length of the initial list of preliminary synonyms that that we chose. So again, something like depressed mood, disturbed sleep, fatigue, they had much longer lists of initial preliminary synonyms uh, than constipation and palpitations. I can see some potential criticism in terms of like, is it biased to decide which symptoms we want to look at But at the same time, one of the things I really like about that description, and I think it's an important one, is looking at the different domains of, I guess you could think of it like a spectrum from least abstract to most abstract and kind of selecting along that spectrum so that you're getting a nice representation. So I actually think that kind of takes care to some degree of this bias criticism that might creep in in terms of like why select those five out of the innumerable symptoms that are out there. Um, Do you have anything to add to that? Because I know that there was probably some pushback in this area. I, you know, we all know how the review process can be a little demanding sometimes. And so, you know, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah. And, you know, there was, there was some pushback on that and it was expected. And I, and I wish I would have talked to you to have this nice spectrum description to explain uh, to the the reviewers. I I, I think they they would have liked that. Uh, Yeah, I mean, this decision came down to the clinical expertise, um, our clinical experts, you know, input from them. This is what they felt we we should do. Of course, if we had the time and and the resources, we would have validated for for all of them. But it just it just wasn't feasible. So we tried to pick along that that spectrum to, you know, try to be representative. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, it is a, from what I gathered, it is a f- kind of a methodological feasibility pilot. And, and so part of what you're doing is evaluating the feasibility of these things too. And, um, and I, I mean, not that you need me to argue for you, but I do think that something you said earlier resonates, which is because you are nurse scientists working with clinical nurses and informaticists, and it's not just uh, data scientists that are removed from the process of nursing and from patient care, um, you do have this sort of ethos operating in the background that says this does connect back to a patient. And to have the clinical experts weighing in, I think, is part and parcel of what makes what you guys do applicable to nursing. So I, I think that's, I mean, they obviously thought that was a worthy answer, so that's great. So I know we talked a little bit about what the data seemed to show in terms of what emerged um, in terms of the language clustering and things like this. What were sort of the main findings of this project? What was the sort of primary finding, if, if you would like to call it that? Again, let me give a little bit of explanation as we can get to, to the results. So the main findings were related to the evaluation of the vocabularies and of Nimble Miner's labeling performance. So in order to evaluate 
the vocabularies and the labeling performance, what we needed to do was create a gold standard of manually annotated clinical notes that we had, you know, nurse scientists read through the notes for these five symptoms that we talked about and say, you know, is, is the symptom in the note? Is, is it not, you know, is there evidence of this symptom for the patient? Uh, Is there not? And then we compare this to the labels that Nimble Miner spits out, you know, based on our vocabularies, and then we can calculate some performance metrics. And we were able to identify additional synonym words and expressions for each symptom concept, you know, beyond those preliminary lists that we inputted. And the increase in synonym vocabulary size kind of was amazing. It ranged from double to disturbed sleep to almost an 11 times increase for palpitations. And these synonyms uh, represented a, a number of things, including abbreviations like palps for palpitations, uh, misspellings, which let me tell you, people, uh, clinicians cannot spell or maybe type the word palpitations. There, You've never seen so many misspellings of the word palpitations uh, in your life. And, you know, the, the temper, the results, like a little bit, some of them were unique multi-word combinations. Like a lot of them were unique multi-word combinations. So instead of just heart racing, it would be like feels heart racing. And those would be two unique things in our set, right? Or um, dizziness palpitations or palpitation palpitations halter monitor. You know, those, those would be unique mm-hmm. things. So, so some of the expansion is because of these unique multi-word combinations, but the unique multi-word combinations become important uh, in certain instances, in some instances, they don't. Let me just give you an example because I think that's the, the best way to explain it again. So if you think about like the concept of distress, like being something under anxiety, like the word distress. Well, if you're just looking for the word distress, you are going to get a label of distress anxiety for respiratory distress. And those are obviously like not the, the same thing, right? So that's when we need to make the, the distinguishing factor between the um, different multi, multi-word combinations. But what was really exciting to us is that all the metrics indicated good or excellent performance for all five of, of the concepts, Now, another thing that was interesting that we did was we looked for instances of incorrect labeling. And this is probably some of the most interesting uh, things that we did, actually. And we found that the most common reason for false positive symptom identification was due to the term being relatively far from a negated term. So most clinicians have probably done this themselves. So, right. So, you know, you want to write this whole list of things that the patient doesn't have. So you'll write no complaint of pain, diarrhea, nausea, vomiting, constipation, headache, whatever. It just goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on, right? So, you know, we might be interested in that 
concept that's 20 words down the line from no complaint of, and that's going to be labeled as positive, you know, occurring because it's so far away from the negation term. And we have to set some limit on how far away uh, the negation term is, is picking up the terms of the words. Mm. The other common causes of false positives were things like the negation term not being included in the vocabulary software. Like that's easy to fix. Uh, some of the ones that were missing were like never exhibited um, HO for history of, and you can just add add that back in. And then um, also, you know, non-relevant usage of a symptom term. And the example that we put in the paper, which I think is a good one, is like sluggish referring to your pupil response and not fatigue. And again, that's kind of where some of the multi-word combinations are important. And then also uh, defining irrelevant terms for some of the symptom concepts are, are important as, as well. Other things were like potential medication side effects, um, something not being an active problem. So an example of that would be like medication X may cause drowsiness, you know? So those were uh, some of the other challenges. And then one that we didn't put in the paper that was especially unusual that I just that I just thought was like so fascinating when we discovered it is that we were having a really high occurrence of emotional liability hmm. in some of our notes. And we're like, why, like, why is this? Like, this is kind of an unusual one to be really common. Um, so we went back to the notes and, and started looking and it turns out that there was a provider whose last name was Moody. <sighs> And that was giving us these false positives for emotional liability. So, you know, go going back to the complexity of language, like who would have ever, like I would have never thought that that was something we need to look for. So that goes back to the complexity of language and the importance of, you need to look at your data, right? Like always, always look at, look at your data. That's one of the things I find to be the most fascinating aspects or elements of your work in this particular space. It strikes me that you you jumped into the most combinatorially complex area that you could have. And I say that because there's literally a problem here of an infinite amount of complexity. Because in written language, you can look at combinations of letters and words. You can look at combinations of words and sentences, sentences and paragraphs, paragraphs and pages, pages and stories. You can look at the actual story. You can look at the context. You can look at the, the, the syntax. So the point is like, there is an infinite number of different layers you can look at. And within them, there's an infinite number of different combinations of things that can be. And so there's this combinatorial explosion that happens, but that doesn't mean there's an infinite number of ways that work to interpret it clinically. And so that's what's so fascinating about what you do is you're taking this unbelievably expansive data set or sets across the length of your career and trying to figure out like, how do I make this applicable and clinically relevant? And we don't have to spend time talking about it. I just wanted to put it out there that I think it's such a, I mean, this might be a weird thing to say, but it's such a brave thing to do, I think. And it's such an, a fascinating area. So. I just wanted to put that out there in response to that last point about that coming back to that complexity. 
Well, thank you. And we actually went for one of the least complex, least computational demanding ways to look at this, you know, as, as an initial starting point, right? For how complex it is, it really is. And it comes down to like a, a text mining problem of developing these vocabularies and kind of um, in our next steps, we hope we can go even more, again, not to discuss it too much, but to go to even more um, straight machine learning tasks, you know, to learn the features of a note that has a positive instance of fatigue and not be reliant on the, the vocabularies. But those are much more, you know, computationally demanding things to do. Um, and, it, and if you can achieve what you want with these less computationally demanding um, processes, you know, why, why not do that and, and stop at that point? Absolutely. So that's actually a nice segue into, so I have two more questions for you. The next question being, what is sort of next on the horizon? Um, since you've done this work, what would the, the very next step be? And it, you're probably already working on that next step. Um, but, you know, tell us a little bit about, just give us some insight into what that next thing is. What are you working on now? Yeah, so the, so the primary limitation of, of what we did or what we see as the primary limitation of what we did is that our notes were obtained from a single medical center. We really don't know uh, if the symptom vocabularies are generalizable to other medical centers, to other, to other systems. Uh, it really needs to be tested and potentially refined, you know, validated in another medical center. So we're in the process of doing that right now with the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center notes. And we'll compare and, and see how similar or disparate the vocabularies that we come up with are. And then then we'll we'll go to go from there. If they're comparable, you know, getting back to your our previous point that we we just talked about, you know, we'll look into expanding our methods to capture other aspects of the symptom experience, you know, hopefully going beyond the the yes no occurrence, trying to get at things like the severity, um, indications that this might be burdensome to the patient, and we'll need to work on methods to capture more difficult symptom concepts like distinguishing an occurrence of currently depressed mood from a diagnosis of depression, which I think that one's going to be particularly challenging with, with the text. So what do you wish that someone told you when you were at the outside of your journey into nursing science? Like what's one piece of advice that you wish you were given now that you know what you know? Yeah. So what I would say is don't, don't be afraid to go where the science takes you. So I could have never predicted what I would be doing now. And I'll just um, share, share a little story with you about the background of this project, more of the the hidden information, if you will. So I had originally planned to just perform the symptom cluster analysis using symptom information that was already extracted from notes using an NLP tool that had been developed for physician-focused tasks. And, you know, I thought that would be fine. I didn't really think much of it at the time. 
And I noticed that in this data set, there was no symptom information from nursing notes. Like there were no nursing notes in the set that had information extracted from it. And I asked about the team, I asked the team that had done the extraction, like, well, well, where are the nursing notes? And they said that the algorithm does not, their algorithm does not perform well on nursing notes. Um, and that's kind of what got me down this whole line of we, we really need these things for nurse specific tasks. But oh, finding that out, I definitely had like a lot of panic. This was a project that was funded. You know, I needed to get this done. Like, how in the world am I going to do this? Like, I'm not an, an NLP I'm not an NLP expert, but you know, this is what launched my search for symptom focused NLP. And then fortuitously, Dr. Max Topaz came to Columbia University, you know, that couldn't have worked out better. And he was developing, you know, this, this system that I could, could use to, to do this. And, you know, we could make these really cool symptom vocabularies with it. So I think so often when you hear a presentation, probably even, you know, listening to this podcast, the work looks so direct and and linear, but it's not. I, I don't know if it ever is. And if there's people out there who, who can do that, that's good for them. That's great. It's never been that, that way for me. But really, some of the best ideas and opportunities came from the detours. So I think you need to lean into the uncomfortableness sometimes and, you know, look for, for the opportunities. And it's easy to, it's easier to say when you're on the other end, when things, you know, kind of worked out from it. Right. But um, yeah, just, just lean into the, to the challenges. Lean into the challenges. I love that advice. Teresa, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate your time. This has been wonderful. Ian, can I say one more thing to your listeners? Please. Listeners, <laughs> I am now going to shamelessly plug for you to contact me to use our symptom vocabularies. We, you know, develop them for other nurse scientists to use. The only way that we're going to be able to advance symptom science is, of course, if we're all working with our individual populations, you know, to advance our, our, our own little pieces of, of the pie. So please, um, whether you're a professor or a student, you know, don't hesitate to contact us to use, use these vocabularies. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. If you'd like to donate to support the show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. And if you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, or if I've reviewed a paper you are an author on and you would like to join me for an episode, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.